0: you're listening to the tri-state community church podcast a ministry of the associate Reformed presbyterian church located in the greater pittsburgh metropolitan area for more information including service times please visit us at facebook.com forward slash tri-state reformed church i invite you to return to genesis 32 we'll be reading the entire chapter taking it as one literary unit this morning Genesis 32 verse 1, Jacob went on his way and the angels of God met him. And when Jacob saw them, he said, this is God's camp. So he called the name of that place, Mahanaim. And Jacob sent messengers before him to Esau, his brother, in the land of Seir, the country of Edom, instructing them, thus you shall say to my Lord Esau, thus says your servant Jacob, I have sojourned with Laban and stayed until now. I have oxen, donkeys, flocks, male servants, female servants. I have sent to tell my Lord in order that I may find favor in your sight. And the messengers returned to Jacob saying, We came to your brother Esau, and he is coming to meet you. And there are 400 men with him. Then Jacob was greatly afraid and distressed, and he divided the people who were with him and the flocks and herds and camels into two camps, thinking if Esau comes to one camp and attacks it, Then the camp that is left will escape. And Jacob said, O God of my father Abraham and God of my father Isaac, O Lord, who said to me, Return to your country and to your kindred that I may do you good. I am not worthy of the least of all of the deeds of steadfast love and all of the faithfulness that you have shown to your servant. For with only my staff I crossed this Jordan, and now I have become two camps." Please deliver me from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esau, for I fear him, that he may come and attack me, the mothers with the children. But you said, I will surely do you good and make your offspring as the sand of the sea, which cannot be numbered for multitude. So he stayed there that night, and from what he had with him, he took a present for his brother Esau. Two hundred female goats, twenty male goats, two hundred ewes and twenty rams, 30 milking camels and their calves, 40 cows and 10 bulls, 20 female donkeys and 10 male donkeys. These he handed over to his servants, every drove by itself, and said to his servants, Pass on ahead of me and put a space between drove and drove. He instructed the first, When he saw my brother meets you and asks you, To whom do you belong? Where are you going? And whose are these ahead of you? Then you shall say they belong to your servant Jacob. They are a present sent to my Lord Esau. And moreover, he is behind us. He likewise instructed the second and third and all who followed the droves. You shall say the same thing to Esau when you find him. And you shall say, moreover, your servant Jacob is behind us. For he thought, I may appease him with the present that goes ahead of me. And afterwards I shall see his face. Perhaps he will accept me. So the present passed on ahead of him, and he himself stayed that night in the camp. The same night he arose and took his two wives, his two female servants, and his 11 children and crossed the ford of the Jabbok. He took them and sent them across the stream and everything else that he had, and Jacob was left alone, and a man wrestled with him until the breaking of the day. When the man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob, he touched his hip socket, and Jacob's hip was put out of joint as he wrestled with him. For I have seen God face to face, yet my life has been delivered. The sun rose upon him as he passed, Penuel, limping because of his hip. Therefore to this day the people of Israel do not eat the sinew of the thigh that is on the hip socket, because he touched the socket of Jacob's hip on the sinew of the thigh. Heavenly Father, we call on you and we look to you, Father, that you would be pleased to teach us from this passage which in so many ways is mysterious to us and so many ways is obscure to us so far removed from the culture that we live and breathe in. Father we pray that you would teach us and show us that the things that are taking place here in this passage are so dear and close to our hearts. Father we pray that you would shape and mold us after the likeness of this message that you have for us from this passage. Teach us what you seek to instruct us with, with this passage, O Lord, and make application to each one of us, we pray. O Father, we pray these things for your glory in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. Well, in in verse 1, we find Jacob. He is returning back to his folks. He's back to his father Isaac. And as we have been studying through Genesis, we've seen that uh, Jacob has been uh, serving his uncle Laban for these, what, 20 years, right? 20 years. And um, in the last chapter, as we uh, made our way through that chapter, we saw that by God's grace, he is delivered. Uh, Jacob from Laban's clutches. And we saw last week that that in part really is kind of a preamble, if you will, uh, to the exodus that we would find later in uh, the book that bears the name Exodus. That here in many ways we see many parallels between Laban and Pharaoh, if you will, uh, and a number of parallels. While here uh, Jacob is now free from the clutches of Laban, only to find himself in another jam. And that's really how life is, isn't it? I, mean, I, I know I've prayed with so many of you, and you were in a spot, and we prayed, and, oh, there's a spot, the spot, and we pray, and, and God gets you through the spot. And, and guess what? <laughs> a couple months later is another spot, isn't there? <laughs> and that's how it is, isn't it? Uh, you, you wonder how that works. Well, we start to see how that works, and and uh, here we see Jacob is uh, in another spot. But what is really interesting is look at verse one again. Jacob went on his way, and what happens? The angels of God met him. Now, what is significant about that? Well, we might say, you know, on the surface of it, well, it's significant. It's the angels are. I mean, I angels have. You know, I don't ever recall seeing angels. <laughs> But what is significant about that? Well, you remember how I've been saying through this thing that we need to keep Genesis 28 in the back of our minds as we plow through Genesis 29, 30, 31, 32. And what is significant about Genesis 28? Well, that's when Jacob is on his way up to his uncle Laban's, right? And as he's on his way up to his uncle Laban's, he has a vision and a dream. And what is what is that vision that he has in the dream? He sees a stairway. And, on, and what is on the stairway? Angels are ascending and descending. And the Lord stood above the stairway. And furthermore, in verse 15 of that chapter, the Lord uh, makes a promise to Jacob that he will be with him always while he accomplishes all that he has promised. Okay. That's a set of brackets. Let's say that is the first bracket. Now, 20 years has elapsed. And remind you, Jacob is on his way up to his Uncle Laban's, and the only thing he has in his hand is a staff. That's all he has. He goes up to his Uncle Laban's on his way up. He didn't even know if he would find a wife. Remember, part of his reason for going up there was finding a wife. And now 20 years have elapsed, and Jacob is now returning And the angels meet him again. And that's another set of rackets. And what is the significance of that? It's a reminder to Jacob. "Hey, Hey, Jacob. You remember I told you I would be with you? Hello? I've been with you. When we apply for work and we want to get the job, we put together a resume, don't we? And we want to put some accomplishments that we have on our resume. Well, I would submit to you that this is the Lord's resume that we're looking at here. It's a perfect resume. He has accomplished what he has set to accomplish. And here we see this is meant to, to demonstrate to, to Jacob that the Lord is with him and the Lord is accomplishing what he has promised. And, of course, Jacob celebrates that. He calls the name of that place, uh, Ma'anaim, and... um then in verse 3, we find Jacob sending messengers to Esau, his brother. Now, why would he do that? Well, you'll recall, finding a wife was only part of the reason Jacob scrammed out of his father's house, isn't it? And I'm sure that when he went up to his uncle Laban, he probably left a lot of this out. Why did, why did Jacob have to leave his father's house? One of the reasons he had to leave his father's house is because of this deal he did with his father and with Esau. Jacob, his very name, means deceiver, doesn't it? Heel grabber, cheater. And what did he do? Well, he swindled his brother out of his birthright What else did he do? Well, he posed as his brother. He posed as Esau and lied to his father's, right before his father's blind eyes. He lied to him, deceived him. And how did Esau take that? Esau was determined to kill him, wasn't he? And of course, Jacob's mother finds out about this. Jacob's mother, you know, mom has a way of finding out about everything, doesn't she? And what does she say? What does she say to Jacob? You need to get out of here. And she reminds its really masterfully the way she does it. She reminds Isaac, you know, uh, Esau had married these Canaanite women, and they had been a grief to them. And she says to her husband, Isaac, listen, we need to send Jacob off so he can find a wife from our father's household." of course, Isaac agrees to that, and Jacob's off to Laban's. Now, he's been there for 20 years. Now, he's finally free from Laban's clutch, but now there's this other issue. What's the other issue? It's Esau. It's Esau. And in verse 3, Jacob is sending messengers before him. I think he's trying to test the waters here to see, okay, 20 years have gone by. What is, what is Esau's disposition towards me? In verse 4, he instructs his messengers. He says, thus you shall say to my Lord Esau, thus says your servant. Notice that word servant. Is that something you expect Jacob to say? Seems to be some changes have taken place in Jacob, huh? I think so. He says, I have with, I've sojourned with Laban and stayed until now. And in verse 5, I have oxen, donkeys, flocks, male servants, female servants. I have sent to tell my Lord in order that I may find favor in your sight. You know, what, is, what, is, what is Jacob up to? Well, he, he, wants to, he wants to find out if Esau still wants to kill him. I think think there's more going on than that, but for right now, let's just call it that. Now, in verse 6, the messengers return to Jacob, and notice what they say. They say, we came to your brother Esau, and he is coming to meet you. Okay, that sounds good so far, but notice what's said next. There are 400 men with him. I mean, let's try to get into this text here. The last you heard of Esau... He's trying to kill you. And Esau is stronger than you. He's more powerful than you. And here Esau is coming to meet you, and he has 400 men with him. That's a small army, isn't it? Now, how does Jacob respond to that? Well, it's clear in verse 7 he's afraid, he's distressed. So he divides the people with him, his flocks and herds and camels, into two camps, and his thought process is exposed to us in verse 8. If Esau comes to one camp and attacks it, then perhaps another camp will be left to escape. And then in verse 9, we find Jacob doing something that at least as far as the record is concerned, we haven't ever seen him do. And that's pray. It's kind of odd, isn't it? Have you notice that? Now perhaps he prayed. Some commentators say, well, Esau, Jacob never prayed. I don't know if he, we can say that. What we can say is we have no record of him praying. But here we have a, here we have a prayer. And notice what he says. He says, "O oh God of my father Abraham, God of my father Isaac, O oh Lord, who said to me, return to your country and to your kindred that I may do you good. No ambiguity as to who Jacob is talking to here, is there? No ambiguity about that. Notice verse 10, I am not worthy of the least of all of the deeds of steadfast love and all of the faithfulness that you have shown to your servant. For with only my staff I crossed this Jordan and now I have become two camps. Notice he's confessing his unworthiness. It doesn't sound like the same guy, does it? Verse 11, please deliver me from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esau, for I fear him that he may come and attack me, the mothers, with the children. And then he embraces the promise. Verse 12, but you said, I will surely do good and make your offspring as the sand of the sea, which cannot be numbered for multitude. Some of us will say, well, if he's embraced the promise, why is he scared? Well, (laughs) come on. Every one of us would be afraid of this. And embracing the promise doesn't mean there isn't going to be any bloodshed, does it? Not necessarily. This is a frightening situation. And mind you, it's often pointed out that Jacob is really between a rock and a hard place. Why do I say that? And literally between rocks and a hard place. What happened at the end of the last chapter? A covenant was made between Jacob and Laban, and there was these pile of stones, this heap, remember? And what was made in that covenant? Laban covenants not to cross over the heap. Jacob covenants not to cross back over the heat. Jacob has no recourse to return to Laban. That's literally a rock. Esau is a hard place. Verse 13, Jacob stayed there that night, and from what he had with him, he took a present for his brother Esau. Notice the, the size of this present. And this really speaks to, you know, in an earlier message, I pointed out how God so prospered Jacob within the inside of six years. Jacob becomes extremely wealthy, and we see a bit of this wealth. Notice the size and magnitude of this gift. Verse 14, 200 female goats. Now, we're not farmers. We're not... You know, you know, if we, were, if we lived out in the Midwest somewhere and we were farmers, it might mean a little bit more to us, but this is the currency of the day. This is the economy of the day. 200 female goats, 20 male goats, 200 ewes, 20 rams, 30 milking camels and their calves, 40 cows, 10 bulls, 20 female donkeys, 10 male donkeys. Not a small gift, a magnificent gift. Verse 16, these he handed over to his servants, every drove by itself, and said to his servants, Pass on ahead of me and put a space between drove and drove. And he instructed the first. Verse 17, When Esau, my brother, meets you and asks, To whom do you belong? Where are you going? And whose are these ahead of you? Then you shall say, They belong to your servant Jacob. They are a present sent to my Lord Esau. Moreover, he is behind us. So he set up these droves. They're to take this livestock in droves and off they go. And as they meet Esau, uh, they're to say these things over and over again. This is a gift to you. And your brother Jacob is behind us. So here comes a here comes a here comes a drove. And Esau meets him. What is, what is, what is Jacob trying to do? Uh, it appears at the very surface he's trying to appease his brother's wrath. Perhaps he's coming to attack me. Maybe this will appease his wrath. And in verse. Um, Uh, It could be verse 20. Here we are told what Jacob's thoughts were. He says in verse 20, I may appease him with the present that goes ahead of me, and afterward I shall see his face, and perhaps he will accept me. So the present, verse 21, goes on ahead of him. And then the scene changes. It's now nighttime. Verse 22, Jacob does something that would not normally take place, and what is that? Well, he crosses a body of water at night. That's a detail that might escape us, but would you cross a fast-running stream at night? Um, it seems that there's some desperation on his part. It seems that he is wanting to get alone. He sends his children and uh, female servants and wives across the, across the, uh, the, the river, if you will, and in verse 24, he's left alone. And then in verse 24, we're told that a man wrestled with him until the breaking of the day. Now, every time I read verse 24, I mean, over the years, as I've read verse 24, i got to tell you, I cannot help but to think of being back in high school um, I, I Some of you have heard the stories. I went out for, I played baseball for a while, and man, I was one of those guys that was happy to sit on the bench because, you know, as long as you're sitting on the bench with your glove, you look like you can play baseball. But when they invite you to go out on the field, well, then, then you know, the cat's out of the bag. Then there's, no one's left for any doubt, this dude cannot play baseball, and that was me. Uh, I went out, I don't know why I ever did this, but I went out for basketball one time, too, and. And I love the conditioning. Maggie, you know the story. Tammy's heard it over and over and over. But, you know, I, I think one of the reasons I went out for basketball is I really liked the coach we had. He was such a great guy. And and he he wasn't one of those fellas that just kind of ran around and blew the whistle and said, you guys do this and you guys do that. He was always with us. He ran with us, man. If we had to do steps, he was, he was the first one up the steps and back down and up the steps. And he was probably in his mid-40s at that time. And I remember we had this... um This one drill that he would do with us often is we would go around the walls of the gymnasium and some of you probably know the name of this exercise, but you lean your back against the wall and you squat down to where your your thighs are parallel with the floor. What is that called? What's it called? Wall sit. I knew you guys would know the name of that. I know the pain of that. I don't know the name of that. But what we would do is we would wall sit and all stare at each other. And the coach, the teacher, he would bounce, he would just be as comfortable as could be bouncing this ball, you know. As we all looked at each other and we did it until the last one was standing. And every single time, it was our coach who was the last one standing. And it was hilarious because as this went on, man, you'd start to see the legs, man. Like, and nobody wanted to go first, not a one. No, who wants to be the first one down? You'd hold on as long as you could. And what was hilarious is finally when someone went, it would be like bloop. Then it would be like bloop, 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 bloop. You know? <laughs> then there would just be a few, you know. And then in it, it, a very short period of time, everybody's down because you can't sit like that for very long, can you? And I loved that conditioning. I loved that running. I loved all that, you know, the steps, the weights, all that stuff. And the, but and as soon as you gave me a ball, it was humiliating. I couldn't get it in that hoop. I didn't even feel like I looked right. It was like, oh, goodness. So as soon as the conditioning was over, I dropped out, you know. And a lot of the folks said to me, man, they were like, man, why would you go through all that conditioning and, and then drop out? I'm like, well, what if I'd have dropped out before the conditioning was over? What would you have said to me? Well, we just said you couldn't handle the conditioning. I said I love the conditioning and I love the coach. I said, but you be honest with me. Do you really want me on your basketball team? And they were like, fair enough. But along comes this wrestling. We didn't have an organized team yet, but we were thinking about an organized team. And and uh, we went to gym class one day, and that's what we did. I mean, I. It wasn't something I was interested in, and so I tried it. And they, they, you know, we they weighed us, and then they each put us like in categories, you know, weight categories. And uh, you know, basically, you got on the mat, and the, the the teacher would blow the whistle, and then you wrestled until he blew the whistle again. Well, um, I think it was two minutes. Am I right on that? I think it's two minutes. It's a short period of time. But if you've ever done that, do you, you know that? Two minutes seems like a long time, especially if you're in with somebody who is like really close to your strength or a little stronger than you. One of the ways the coach used to train us was he would put us in with people who were heavier than us. You know, 20 or 25 pounds makes a big difference when you're doing that. And, you know, like I knew a lot of times I wasn't going to win those things, but I would be like, I'm not going to win. I know I'm not going to win, but you're not going to pin me. And I would do everything I could to keep from getting pinned. That two minutes was a long time. And every time I read verse 24, Jacob was left alone and a man wrestled with him for two minutes. No, till the whistle blew. No, until the breaking of the day. When you're wrestling like that, you're using every muscle in your body intensely. You know, your heart starts just... I mean, you're out of breath in no time, and it's intense. And here what we see is we see an intense, intense combat here taking place in verse 24. In verse 25, when the man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob, he touched his hip socket, and Jacob's hip was put out of joint as he wrestled with him. Now, that never happened to me. When you're wrestling... If, if your hip was to go out, like in wrestling, every, all your leverage is, you use your legs intensely, your hips, your torso, you use that intensely. Just watch it. Just watch. And watch what the athletes are doing. It's intense. Now, can you imagine wrestling with somebody? And you think, okay, it's a draw, until they reach out and they touch your hip. And just with the mere touch of the hip, there's enough strength in that touch. Pop your hip out of socket. Rot row, And besides that, after that hip's out of that socket, you're not wrestling no more. You're done. I mean, you're more than done. It's over. And notice verse 26. The man uh, says to Jacob, let me go for the day has broken. But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. And then the man says something that's quite interesting. He says, well, what is your name? And he said, Jacob. And then he said, your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel. For you have striven with God and with man and have prevailed. Who is this that Jacob is wrestling with? The position I take on it is he's wrestling with a pre-incarnate Christ. It's the same one that met Abraham in chapter 18 at the, by the oaks of Mamre. And I say that because it's obviously God he's wrestling with. And it is the son who is the mediator between God and man. So as a preincarnate Christ who has come to meet Jacob. And this is important for us. He comes and he meets Jacob exactly where he is. Is he accommodates his strength to the exact proportion that is needed in order to wrestle with Jacob? He accommodates him. Now, with that in mind, let, let's I mean let's just ask this question what is this about? What is the purpose of this? What is this teaching? Well, there are many commentaries, many, and some from some very bright minds and great Bible teachers that say this is about prayer. It's about prevailing prayer. You know, Jacob wants to be alone. Why does he want to be alone? Well, he's already prayed. He wants to pray some more. There's a big day coming. It's a dangerous day. He wants to be alone with God. And I think you can tell by the way I'm talking, and I don't necessarily share that view. It is a view. It's a popular view. I think it's a good application of this text, but I really don't think it's the essence of this text. I'll tell you why I don't think it is. Notice that the man instigates in verse 24. It isn't Jacob that starts wrestling with him. The man starts wrestling with Jacob. And then the man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob in verse 25. He touched his hip socket in Jacob's hip was put out a joint. And then he said, let me go. But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. Obviously, Jacob realizes he's wrestling with God at this point. He realizes it. He asks for the blessing. But then the Lord says to Jacob, what is your name? Now, does the Lord not know Jacob's name? Well, of course he does. But why would the Lord ask Jacob, what his name was. It's for this reason. Jacob's name means something. You remember when he was born. Some of us, when we were studying. Jacob was born second. Esau is the oldest. Jacob is born second. What is Jacob doing as he comes out of his mother's womb? He's grabbing the heel of his brother. And his name actually means heel grabber or cheat. Deceiver. So when God says to Jacob, What is your name? Jacob is forced to answer with the word whose English equivalent is heel grabber or cheat. What is your name? Cheat. What? Cheat. I didn't hear you. Cheat. My name is Cheat, and it's not only what I am called; it's also what I am. It's what I am. And I think this speaks much, much differently, much deeper than just wrestling and prayer. What is this speaking to? Let's take an inventory here for a moment. Let's take an inventory. We see a lot of changes in Jacob, an enormous amount of change. I mean, he's referring to Esau as his servant. This is a man who wanted to steal the birthright. All he wanted was the birthright. It was rightfully his, but he stole it anyway. Now he's referring to his brother as a, he's a servant. He refers to his brother as Lord with a lowercase L. Here we see Jacob is obeying the Lord. The Lord tells Jacob to go back to his father's house. Jacob's obeying, so we go for obedience. We see some humility. He's embracing the promises in his prayer. He says to the Lord, you've promised to be with me. He's embracing promises. I think he's repenting too. Like with this big gift. What's up with this big gift? In my notes somewhere, I wrote that Jacob is trying to appease his brother. Or he's making, here's what I wrote, Jacob attempts to atone with gifts that he may find favor in Esau's sight. The more I study this, and that is one position. You review the commentaries and you'll see that is one position. But the more I review this, I think there's much more going on than that. You want to know what I think Jacob's doing? I think he's repenting. And and it's been my position as we go through. Remember, these stories are not given to us so we can slam the patriarchs. That's not the reason. And Spurgeon used to counsel his students. Listen, when it comes to the saints, think the best. Don't think the worst. Sometimes you'll hear sermons on these, and it's almost like like the preacher is thinking the worst possible construction we could put on this, and that's what's proclaimed. An application is made of that. I don't want to take that route. Maybe it is the worst. I don't know. We could quickly come to the application if it is, and we all know that application. But I don't think it's the worst. I think, I think Jacob's repenting. And he's trying to make restitution. And I'm not the only one that thinks that. There there are many others that think that. So if that is the case, then Jacob, Jacob is obeying. He's demonstrating humility. He's repenting. He's trying to make restitution. He's saying to God, I am unworthy. I am unworthy for all the blessings that I've received. and down the list it goes. But yet there's this one thing that's missing. And what is it? Jacob has yet to truly surrender to God. And my point here is that it is possible to obey God's commands Trust God's promises. Embrace God's promises. Consider yourself unworthy of God's blessings. Call on God's deliverance. Give up much or all of your stuff. And still not have surrendered the innermost part of you to the Lord. It is possible. And I'm fearful that it's common. Jacob was touched by the Lord in the midst of this. In fact, in this text, I have another note. Wrote here, I write in this text, God dislocates Jacob's hip, crushing his independence and self-reliance, that so much marks his lack of surrender. But we can easily put ourselves in there, can't we? we? Should ask ourselves the question this morning. Okay, we've been singing, we've been praying. We've been studying the Bible. We've had fellowship. We—I I know most of you here this morning—you consider yourselves unworthy of the blessings that God has given you. But here's the question that remains, and this is a question that we can only answer ourselves before ourselves and the Lord: Have you surrendered your heart? Because you can do all of this other stuff. And on the outside, look like you're tracking perfectly. While on the inside, you're still determined to go your own way. Or at least you're willing to only go to a certain point. You follow what I'm saying? I think prayer is a good application of this text. We do have to wrestle with the Lord in prayer, don't we? I think, in fact, at one point while I was writing this and trying to make sense, what do we do with this passage? Lord, what do we do with this passage? It was it really dawn on me. I think it was yesterday morning as I'm wrestling with this passage. And I told Tammy yes, as of yesterday morning, I said, I'm not sure what I'm going to do with this text. And I, I went downstairs and worked on it some morning. I'm like, Lord, <laughs> I'm reading about Jacob and you wrestling, <laughs> and I'm actually wrestling with you right now trying to figure out what to do with this text. The life, the Christian life is all about wrestling, isn't it? From one match to the next, the whistle blows and you're on and the whistle blows and you're off for a minute, but then the whistle blows and you're back on again. Here's the question. Has God dislocated you yet? Have you been dislocated? When God touched Jacob's hip, he was done. He limped after that. I heard one pastor say this. When he looks for somebody, when, when the church that he's pastoring looks for, for someone to assume a position of leadership, the question that he always wants to have answered is, is that person limping? Are they limping? And that's a good question for us to ask ourselves this morning. Are we limping? In other words, has God dislocated you? Has He brought you to the point where He's finally rendered you and said, you know what? Can't go any further? That's a good question for us to ask ourselves this morning, is it not? And I submit to you, that's the meaning of the text that we have before us. So what do we do with this? Well, these are questions that we have to ask ourselves and we have to ask in prayerfully before the Lord. But let's just ask ourselves this question. Listen, everyone. There isn't anything that we do in this life that's perfect, and that includes our surrender. And that's not what I'm talking about. What I'm talking about is, are you willfully, willfully resisting the Lord in any way where you're saying to Him, okay, we can go this far, but we're not going to go any further. If you are, don't try to crush that resistance in your own strength. But it's painful. And it's you, you, one always needs to be careful what they pay, what they pray for. But I would still call on you to pray for this. Lord, dislocate me. Count the cost. But Lord, dislocate. You're going to come out of it with a limp. But that limp will be such a blessed limp because it will remind you every day that he touched you. Amen. Heavenly Father, we so thank you that you've given us this word. Father, we are so, so wonderfully blessed this morning that we see that Father, if you can work with somebody like Jacob, as we've said many times, we see Jacob deceiving and cheating and doing all these things. And we're reminded, we don't think of ourselves as being any better than Jacob. No, we we see ourselves in Jacob so much. And we're comforted by the fact that if you you can work and you can save Jacob, then you can work and save us. And yes, yes, Father, we see that. But here in this text, we see you bring Jacob to the end of his robe. Oh, Father, if you have not done it already, I pray that you would lead each one of us, and I include myself in this, Father. Oh, Father, touch us. Dislocate us. If we must limp, let us limp. For how blessed will that limp be? It reminds us of the fact that you have touched us and rendered us so much more like Jesus in the respect that we would find ourselves so surrendered to you. Father, we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen and amen.